Hi, my name is Laura Elizabeth Willett, and this is the Right Way Podcast. Yes, thank you so much for that introduction there, Laura Elizabeth Woollett. And hello, everyone out there. Thank you so much for joining me on another episode of the Right Way Podcast program with me, your host, Samuel Elliott. person whom you just heard is today's guest, naturally, Laura Elizabeth Woollett, discussing with me her second novel on, on publication date. I was uh, pleasantly surprised to find out publication date is today. How lucky am I to be able to speak to her? Discussing with me her second novel, The Newcomer. The Newcomer is... Very, uh, very different uh, from her previous novel, which was uh, sort of her breakout novel, which she received deservedly so critical acclaim, Beautiful Revolutionary, which for those of you not in the know, naturally is the, as the title might suggest, is about the People's Temple and the Reverend Jim Jones leading his uh, flock, his congregation of 900 strong people to Guyana and ultimately carrying out a uh, mass suicide. So Laura exhaustively researched that, went to the places in which the People's Temple kind of haunted in America and then conducted all sorts of exhaustive research to write Beautiful Revolutionary. It was naturally incredibly well received. And The Newcomer is her her follow-up to that, her second novel. Uh, very different. It's sort of, uh, it's I like that it was, it was her trying something different as well. It is her first attempt at trying a crime novel. And... It is sort of uh, somewhat inspired heavily by the case of Janelle Patton, who was a woman that was murdered on Norfolk Island. So Laura has visited Norfolk Island, conducted research there, uh, used that as a springboard to then create her fictitious, uh, completely fictitious story, uh, The Newcomer, which is centred around a the titular newcomer, Paulina, arriving to Fairfolk Island. And unfortunately, yeah, being tra- tragically, horrifically murdered as the story develops and the kind of uh, plays between her perspective as well as that of her mother's so that Laura really subverted a lot of conventions and norms within the crime genre that I uh, that I liked and I was very lucky to be able to speak to her so without further ado I'd like you all to please give a digital round of applause I'm waiting for it digital round of applause to Laura Elizabeth Wallet speaking to me about her second novel The Newcomer Laura thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program how are you going this afternoon I'm good it's publication day so First day out in the world. Wow. Okay. I didn't know it was actually publication day today. So, yeah. so how's that doing so far? Is this, have you been doing a lot of these or? Um, not yet. Like I, I did one interview last week, um, but I'm going to go for a walk after this and see if it's in my local bookstore. Cause okay. um, yeah, I haven't seen it in a bookstore yet. So, so you're, you're back in ye old Melbourne town or Victoria, wherever it is you hail from. You're not yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. Cool, cool bananas. Look, um, I wanted to start off now. Normally, I ask where the idea for for you know a novel or book originated from, but I suspect that uh, yours was at least partly or heavily inspired by the case of Janelle Patton and that yes. uh, murder. So, yeah, tell me a little bit about that. How that inspired you and served as a springboard to what ultimately became the newcomer. Yeah, well, it's an interesting story actually because I first visited Norfolk Island in. 2018, um, I got funding through a Nilma Sydney travel fund grant to visit Norfolk Island, but I actually pitched a completely different book in my proposal. So it wasn't going to be anything to do with the Janelle Patton case. Uh, but once I got there, I was actually just like, you know what, this is such an interesting setting in its own right that I want to write an island much more closely based on Norfolk Island than what I was intending because the other book I had in mind was um, going to be more of a fictional island 
but sharing some cultural similarities with Norfolk. Uh, yeah, and also once I got there, as an outsider, I kind of had the feeling like this place is probably quite hard to understand and get to the heart of as an outsider. So I wanted to take an outsider's point of view of that culture and that setting. Uh, and being a true crime consumer, uh, I did know about the pattern case. I um, visited the location where her body was found. I kind of walked along some of the same routes that she walked along. Uh, so I got that knowledge while I was there, I guess, and got quite immersed in that environment. And um, it was a, only a week long trip. It was quite short. Uh, but actually the day after I returned to Melbourne, um, the murder of Eurydice Dixon was in the news and that kind of reinforced this feeling that I was having that I wanted to write about a crime victim. Yeah, wow, okay. So first and foremost, um, I did wonder about that, Laura, because obviously with Beautiful Revolutionary, like you had the, um, you were kicking around the idea and then you kind of went there, boots on ground, uh, around mm. everywhere within the People's Temple. So I was wondering if it was that sort of process, but it's interesting to know that you had like a, a different sort of idea brewing and then kind of went there and the, that sort of sort of linked up with that. So you didn't then go back um, to uh, Norfolk as well for an ex sort of extended stay as well. Is that more of your research kind of went into that? I've been back twice. Um, once was in September 2019, and that wasn't for research so much. It was just as a writing retreat. Um, so once I actually got started on the book, like it took me quite a while after that initial trip to really be sure that I wanted to write about this and be sure that, um, I guess, about the characters and who they were and everything. It took about six months for that to actually fall into place. But once I started writing, it came really fast and I was just having a hard time, like, finding the time to write because I was working my day job and, you know, like, trying to fit it in. And um, so I ended up booking three weeks on Norfolk Island for later in the year to look forward to and it helped a lot with the day-to-day -day writing knowing I had like this big space ahead of me to actually write the book I wanted to write in the environment where I was inspired to write it. Um, but once I was there it wasn't so much research um, or formal research in any way but you know that I was walking every day and I was talking to people, just day-to-day -day conversations, and you learn things, and those things make their way into the book. Tell me a little bit, first of all, when you mentioned that you wanted to be sure about uh, writing these characters, what, 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 what did you mean by that, Laura, like in terms of, like, was it the commitment to those, those characters? Was it something like a, a sort of morality standpoint? What, what do you mean by that? Um, for me, when I begin writing, like, a long project, like a novel, there really has to be a sense of... Um, love or obsession for the whole story and the, the characters and the characters need to feel fully formed and that doesn't really happen to me while I write like I need to have an idea of them in my head and I need to start hearing their voice in my head almost um and I didn't have that for a long time and I kind of um tentatively started writing the first chapter which is from Judy's perspective um, towards the end of 2018 
But once I started writing Paulina's first chapter, I got really, really into her voice and suddenly it was like, wow, I know who these characters are. And I, I was kind of like all in at that point. With um, what you're saying, so you're all in, and obviously you did go to mm-hmm. Norfolk a couple of times. Um, I mm-hmm. wondered, so you you met the locals, and I again wondered as well, and keeps harking back to the beautiful revolutionary, because I mean, you were still around, and I think you mentioned, I listened to one of your podcasts talking to JP Pomario about um, your experience there, and you talked to some survivors, I think. Is that, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Or I? Yeah. yeah. So I was wondering, with, with the Norfolk situation, because obviously the case is fresher, like it's happened more recently. Mm-hmm. And I wondered about that in terms of you meeting these sort of people that probably some of them have obviously lived through it. If you then kind of mm-hmm. were a bit apprehensive, like what do I include? What don't I sort of thing, even though it was going to obviously mm-hmm. frame the rest of the story. Yeah, that was one reason I, I went in a much more fictional direction than I did with Beautiful Revolutionary. With Beautiful Revolutionary, I think the big difference was I was writing about historical figures But I was actually trying my best to get to know who they were by Mm. talking to people who knew them. Whereas with this, Paulina became her own person. She isn't meant to be Janelle Patton. She has a lot of characters, characteristics in common with her, um, which are quite obvious if you know a bit about the case. You know, she's the same age, um, moves to the island at a similar similar point in her life. Uh, But... Yeah, I wasn't trying to write Janelle Patton and the characters around Paulina are all fictional. Um, Janelle Patton's family situation was completely different from Paulina's. Uh, her relationships were completely different. So I wasn't trying to get at that, that truth, you know, what really happened. It was just like, I am inspired by this place and aspects of this story and going in my own direction with it. Tell me a little bit about, so you're saying you're inspired by the place, obviously, and I certainly get that impression throughout. I mean, tracing the sort of historical and cultural elements that you sort of weave in there. And I was wondering, because obviously you've, you've taken a real life place and then you've, you've made this, this fictionalized place for a, a myriad of reasons. But I wondered mm-hmm. about the, the sort of historical stuff, because I was wondering, I was like, is that all from the mind of Laura or have you taken some stuff and written it like, because that was, that was really immensely detailed, yeah? And it really mm-hmm. kind of served to make this a real sort of tangible real life place. Yeah, I, I definitely was inspired by the real history of Norfolk Island. I simplified it a lot in this fictional place called Fairfolk. Uh, Norfolk Island, a lot of their population are descended from the mutiny on the bounty, which was a British naval mutiny that happened in the 18th century. And um, basically, you know, some British guys took charge of the ship they were sailing, um, kind of put their captain overboard and took the ship to Tahiti and kidnapped some women and established uh, a new um, community on a tiny island called Pitcairn which is in the South Pacific. Uh, But in the 1800s, the population outgrew that tiny island and a lot of them moved to Norfolk. So that's um, where a lot of Norfolk Islanders to this day are descended from and they have surnames uh, from those original British mutineers. Uh, Fairfolk Island, I did something similar, but there was no... Pitcairn Island in this universe. They just went straight to this fictional island called Fairfolk. Um, yeah, so that was a, a big similarity that was inspired by the real place. 
But Norfolk Island also has other aspects of its history that I didn't include. Um, it was a penal colony, famously. Uh, it was the place where the prisoners who were too bad for Australia, too bad for Tasmania, they were sent to Norfolk. And um, it was a really brutal place. But that is not an aspect of Fairfolk Island's history just because there was no reason to include it plot-wise. So with, with Fairfolk, and this is another thing I wondered as well, because obviously you've, you've visited Norfolk repeatedly, you know, you've walked around, you've seen all this, uh, you've sort of developed so much of an experience from that. And I wondered then, because the way in which you sort of describe it, there's like, there's never really long slabs of prose describing um, the world in which Paulina's sort of orbiting. It's just, you know, there's just these sort of very subtle sort of understated descriptions. And I wondered then uh, how you, because I, I think that I've heard that you write, you edit, you have an unusual writing process and that you edit as you go and then you, you wait until you have, is that correct? You're not... Yeah, I, I, I tend to do that. Um, that doesn't mean I don't like need to do a whole lot of editing at the, the end, but that's usually in collaboration with my editor. Sure. Um, yeah, but I, I tend to kind of um, write things as I go. And every chapter was kind of like its own short story. Like I had each chapter in a separate word file and then I put them all together. And generally I worked on it chron chronologically, but sometimes I would get into the swing of Paulina's story and want to keep going with that. So I would write a few of her chapters at once because um, the book is broken up into these two timelines, which is after Paulina's death from various characters' perspectives and when she's still alive uh, from her own perspective. Let's talk a little bit about that because you kind of mentioned how the novel's presented and this kind of touches on... So, you know, it's, uh, it's been mentioned uh, as, as a crime novel. It's your first attempt as a crime novel. But um, the thing I kind of liked about it is it wasn't so much a sort of straight-laced conventional crime novel in that, like, it wasn't like a why done it. There's detectives rocking up, you know, there's a body there um, kind of standing over it, discussing, you know, they're from there more launching this sort of why done it of finding little tidbits of, crew, of clues and stuff like that. It was more... Uh, again, the two perspective characters of um, Paulina and Julian, obviously they're sort of um, tumultuous or tempestuous sort of relationship. And I wondered if that was how you always saw it, if it was the characters themselves that drew you and the crime itself. It's not incidental, but I mean, obviously it's, it doesn't exactly, it's something that's continuing to lead towards, but at the end of the day, I guess it's their mm -hmm. relationship, which is the, the crux of kind of what you were interested in. Yeah, um, I guess I wanted to use the whodunit aspect as almost like a Trojan horse to get people interested. And then it's only like once they're deep into it, uh, if they keep going with it, that they realize, oh, this isn't just about who the killer is. This is about a lot of other stuff. This is about who these women are, um, what their lives are like, and what it's like to live with murder uh, and violence more generally. Uh, those were the things I was really interested in writing about. Um, I did try very hard to have the pacing of a crime novel. Um, I, I don't know how successful I was, but that was definitely a, a goal of mine to kind of have that fast-paced narrative, a narrative that often um, has like cliffhangers or dramatic moments at the, the end of every chapter, uh, but then have it be about these 
what I think are bigger questions. Yeah, I mean, you, you definitely did do that. So, like, yeah, sorry, like, I didn't mean to give that impression. I bet it's just, it's just that mm -hmm. I found it refreshing that it wasn't sort of like from, you know, sort of like Wozniak's perspective, which it could have easily been. Um, mm -hmm. I wanted to know a little bit about, uh, let's, let's talk about the titular newcomer. Let's talk about Paulina because mm -hmm. uh, the main thing is, yeah, she's a newcomer, she's an outsider. Mainy, I think that they referred to, which isn't a particularly mm -hmm. um, positive sort of, uh, sort of term. And, you know, she obviously comes to Fair Folk on and pretty quickly um, through, through, her, through her actions, but then not so much just her actions as the community's reactions as well. She's sort of demonised. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that because I feel like that's something that's, that's kind of um, aroused your interest there or what you wanted to explore with sort of being demonised and how that kind of then translates ultimately after her death into being perceived as this imperfect victim. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that was inspired by the pattern case to some extent and the uh i read a true crime book called norfolk island of secrets by a guy called tim latham and that book was really interesting because it was actually written before the killer was found and before a trial happened or anything so it ended in a sense of mystery it still wasn't known who had committed this crime but it really delved into the community and um there were a lot of like interviews with men who had had relationships with Patton and the sorts of things they were saying about her was you know like she really knew how to push people's buttons she was marked for violence like if anyone was gonna be killed it's this woman um so the way that people spoke about her was uh interesting um so I wanted to create a character like that and I think Paulina is, um, yeah, she's quite different to Pattern in a lot of ways. Um, but I did want that sense of, you know, of course it is this woman um, because she acts in this way. Uh, yeah, but um, I mean, I think the whole aspect of her being a newcomer and a, a nanny, um, yeah, she's always an, an outsider throughout the book and she's somebody who um, I guess doesn't really try to fit in with the culture and because of that she's always sort of apart from it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly do get that. Um, I like the way in which it was framed as well and this kind of touches on what you talked about there, which what you sort of were aiming to achieve with the, the whole crime sort of caper aspect was th there was just... An, by virtue of the way in which you've written it there, there was just so many suspects because there was just, I mean, I would be alarmed myself if I was uh, a young girl prone to getting to spells of inebriation. God knows I'm a young man that's been prone to spells of inebriation, but um, mm -hmm. to be in an area where essentially it is pretty easy to be preyed upon by mm -hmm. um, the townsfolk. And then that sort of behavior is, isn't sort of the focus of, of what then happens in these sort of resulting sort of um, awful situations of sexual assault or anything. It's more the, again, and this sort of harkens back to what we kind of touched on a little bit there of uh, what was she doing? Why, why was she out? Why was that sort of thing? Mm -hmm. and I wondered if that was again, something that you were trying to depict there or explore. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it's always a thing when something happens to women, like why was she walking across this park at 1am? You know, like the the blame is so often placed on women. So I, I did want to present 
an extreme example of that and a woman who women like a lot of women will find hard to identify with because we are taught to behave in certain ways which keep us safe and um going against that you know like it's not just men who say you shouldn't have been doing that it's also women who kind of uphold that um so yeah like i think paulina is a woman who in many ways breaks all the rules that you're not meant to break mm. there was one line in it that um I don't, like I, I won't say because it's, it's pretty telling kind of aspect but it really sort of, sort of summed it up for me at one point it was just this like one throwaway line and it was saying uh i wrote it down i swear i did pretty's what got you here in the first place and i was mm-hmm. like when i read that i was like poor like that's it really sort of surmises that sort of um belief really that's sort of you know pervasive throughout society even now it's it's kind of um really depressing when you think that you've sort of set this you know what 20 odd years ago sort of assuming around the same sort of time albeit maybe a little bit after um, the janelle Patton case and yet it's still sort of contemporaneous like it still relates to uh current society you know so mm-hmm. yeah look uh, let's talk a little, i just want to talk about one more thing because the Paulina, and I mean, all the characters, and I think you've been praised for this before, I've noticed it throughout the, mm. the media releases and all this sort of stuff, is the authenticity of characters. And there's one element of Paulina, I mean, like, you depict her warts of all, warts and all. Um, I lo- one, one element which I seldom see in any sort of um, uh, literature that I've come across is the depiction of her sort of eating disorder as well. Mm. And it's not obviously this sort of contrived, like, uh, tacked on thing it's it's just just one of the the many elements of her sort of character but I wanted to talk a little bit about that Laura because it just seemed like it was another element of her character that kind of came organically but it kind of did serve in mm-hmm. some ways to sort of show you know sometimes why she could get inebriated and stuff like that tell me a little bit about that because it's mm-hmm. not something you see that much in literature yeah um well that again was uh, a trait of Janelle Patton she was spoken about as being a woman who had an undiagnosed eating disorder. Um, she was a bit of a health freak and a lot of people talked about that. And um, she's a per- she was a person who, like, if she couldn't go for her daily exercise, would get really anxious. Uh, so I found that an interesting aspect and that's an aspect that I wanted to retain and explore because I, I found it so interesting. Um, but I, I also, like just the interplay of her um, alcoholism and her eating disorder was really interesting to me because that's a thing that we don't often see depicted as much. It's, um, you know, because alcohol contains a lot of calories and stuff and when you have a drinking problem as a woman, there's that, um, the, to counterbalance that, you know, the eating habits, and I think that's, yeah, a form of eating disorder that I haven't really seen depicted in fiction very much. Yeah, certainly. I agree with you. That's why I was just interested in to, as to, to the sort of reasoning behind that. I'm sorry, again, so I'm interested mm-hmm. to hear that it was um, one sort of trait of Janelle's as well. But obviously, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about now. So at the, the core of the story, two different characters' perspectives, Judy and Paulina, but that's sort of the, the crux of the story really as well is, is their sort of relationship as well, which obviously is no, you know, not without dysfunction, but it's enduring. The love is there. 
And I wonder if that was sort of, uh, you know, obviously you've, you've touched on how you, you came to be interested in this sort of case and how, how you then went to Norfolk Island. But I feel like that's something that, that that's, that's big stuff. That's the meaty stuff to me, in my opinion, mm-hmm. is this sort of enduring and loving, you know, not beset without problems, but still a loving sort of relationship between mother and daughter. So tell me a little bit about that, mm-hmm. Laura, because that's kind of how the story was based for me. Yeah, I mean, from the outset, I wanted to begin the story from the perspective of Paulina's mother, because I was just thinking, um, you know, the the whole dead girl trope when a body is found on the first page and we don't know who it is and we don't really care because it's just a body, you know, Mm. like, um, I wanted to show the person who's going to miss her the most and who cares the most about her death uh, from the outset and I wanted to begin the novel from that perspective. But um, the this specific mother-daughter relationship, I also just found the nature of it really interesting because it is quite a codependent relationship. Uh, they are extremely close. Um, Judy is a widow. Paulina is, for all intents and purposes, an only child. She does have a half-sister, but uh, doesn't really have much contact with that half-sister. And Judy, you know, um, had quite a difficult time bringing Paulina into into the world. Like, she had several miscarriages. Uh, So there is this extremely close relationship from the start. But also, I think Judy, um, we learn throughout the novel that she has things from her own childhood and her own upbringing that she didn't want to do with her own daughter. So that kind of like sent her in completely the opposite direction to how she was raised. Uh, So I found that really interesting to explore how um, parents try to correct their own parents' mistakes in the way they raise their children. Um, Yeah, but I I think, you know, they, they are in some ways very isolated. Paulina and Judy, they have this extremely close relationship and Sometimes other people are locked out of it and sometimes um, that closeness prevents Judy from kind of um, asking the difficult questions about her own life and herself because she's so wrapped up in this relationship. Uh, So, yeah, I wanted to explore a relationship that was um, extremely loving and extremely close but did have some dysfunctional elements to it. You definitely did that. I, I felt that. I mean, like, yeah, uh, there was, you know, lots of shouting matches, lots of screaming matches, um, Paulina hanging up on Judy repeatedly, telling her to get a life, that sort of stuff, all of which is authentic. It doesn't, you know, uh, seem like it's off the mark at all. Another thing that <clears throat> that I thought that you did really well and I wanted you to talk a little bit about was the depiction of grief or the stages of grieving with, with Judy because it was, I feel like grief is something that is, one of the things that is the most commonly written about uh, and it's one of the most difficult to do. It's like comedy. It's, you know, it's like the Greek tragedy. It's like the laughing or the smiling mask or the, the crying mask. It's something that everyone feels, you know, I can, I can do that, but to actually do it definitely is, is staggeringly hard or, you know, not to come across as like melodramatic or maudlin, but you did it. And the way in which you did it, I feel for a lot of it is the, the subtle sort of nuanced, symbols or triggers that brought about, mm-hmm. um, you know, like a sort of episode for 
for Judy. And it was down to things like the color of the garbage bag, seeing the moon occasionally, depending upon mm-hmm. that sort of things. And I wanted you, cause I was like, that's so authentic. And I wondered, did, did you, did you just inhabit the character of Judy and then that's how it came about? Or did you, did you study grieving or how'd you go about that one? Um, there was one book that came in really helpful. Um, and that was Any Ordinary Day by Lee Sales. Um, it's a book which examines I guess tragedies, catastrophes that come into people's lives unexpectedly. Um, And she interviews a lot of different people. There are victims of um, a hostage situation. I think there's, um, I remember there was like the wife of a man who was killed by his own son who had schizophrenia. And it was just these ordinary people where chaos kind of comes into their life and loss comes into their life in a very sudden way. Um, And yeah, this book was really interesting because like it gave me a sense of how, um, not only just how people are triggered by mundane things, but also how people like grow around their grief as well and learn to accommodate it. Um, Yeah, so I think that was the biggest thing that contributed to my depiction of Judy's grief and um, the way she lives with it and the way it changes shape over time. Another relationship and that kind of carries on from what you've said as well is I thought that, um, that so it was another uh, relationship, it was a familial, female familial relationship, which was, was primarily between Judy and Cara, Judy and Cara. <clears throat> and it was, it, it kind of carries on from what you said, because it feels like it was a sort of supporting like, growing from grief um, and finding, again, a relationship that is far from, from completely flawless or without sort of um, clashing, but one that ultimately endures, prevails, and allows Judy to sort of navigate through this pretty unimaginable situation. You know, it's, it's, it's still so mm-hmm. horrific for that, for that to happen. I'm, you know, it's a lived experience. I can never live that. But, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that because that, for me, felt like a strong relationship too and the other main one mm-hmm. that I really noticed. Yeah, I mean, Kara came out of a couple of impulses and one was just, I didn't want Judy to be completely alone and fending for herself because I felt so bad for her. Um, So I decided to give her a sister who was a bit stronger and more, I guess, capable and competent, even in her grief, even though she's feeling grief really strongly as well. Uh, I wanted to have someone to kind of um, guide Judy, I guess, and, and care for her. Uh, but I also wanted Kara to be um, kind of the the person who's bugging the police and, you know, being like, what are you doing? Like, are you making any progress? Because I just didn't think Judy would ask those questions. She's just so devastated. And, um, like, I think for most of the book, she doesn't really believe in justice or care about justice or really think that much about who the killer is uh, because it's like doesn't matter in some ways because it won't change what happened so I wanted to have a character who was kind of looking after that aspect of it and who was advocating for Paulina um, in that way with with the police and everything because I I just didn't think Judy would be able to do that yeah I mean yeah, I get that too. Certainly, it's staying true to the character. And 
honestly, like a lot of the, I mean, a lot of the Judy stuff was some of my favorite, even the smaller moments. Like there was one where she goes to get her like chicken, um, Chinese restaurant, like chicken food and stuff like that. And then the, the way in which she talks about that and sort of like justifying to herself or kind of thinking, you know, some of these semi-absurd thoughts about like, I'm just getting my, my food without a daughter kind of thing. And then, you know, going back and slowly eating it and being, you know, just going to pieces whenever there's someone that remotely looks like Paulina comes on the screen. All mm-hmm. that is just, yeah, just really smacks of, of realism more. Like you did that really, really well. Thank I wanted you. to know, um, so this is, this, this, is your, this is your second novel now. And the mm-hmm. thing that I always like to, to know about uh, and dredge, dredge through the, the tough stuff is when you've had a novel so well received as Beautiful Revolutionary, how, how was it going, uh, going again, going back on the horsey for, for the newcomer? Was there any sort of, yeah. Uh, it, was, it was so hard to write again after writing Beautiful Revolutionary. That, that took so much out of me. I was mm-hmm. just um, really burned out by the time I, I finished that book and I didn't feel like writing and I like was beating myself up over that because I hadn't had a period of time where I wasn't writing every day for such a long time. So I finished this novel, like Beautiful Revolutionary, and um, suddenly I had all this space in my days and I was just like, what do I do with it? And like, where does my mental energy go? But also like, who am I? Because I've just been, you know, deep in this world of um, Jonestown and People's Temple for about, I think it was like two and a half years. Um, So I kind of just had a lot of, self-reflection to do and um thinking about my own life and stuff but I I I felt really bad that I wasn't writing and I I just Mm. was expecting myself to write and expecting myself to have a new project straight away um and yeah during that time you know late 2017 I had um an Link Arts residency in Jakarta for nine weeks and I had all this time to write and I just didn't mm. and I felt so bad and I felt like such, such imposter syndrome and everything. And then um, by the time Beautiful Revolutionary came out, I was just kind of like, blah. And I, I don't know, like, even though I, it got good reception, like to me, I was just focusing on the bad stuff. Um, yeah. And so it took me a long time to really detach from Beautiful Revolutionary. I don't think it was until really towards the end of the publicity period for that because I felt like I still needed to advocate for that book and talk about it and remember what I had researched and um, all that stuff so I could talk about it properly. Uh, So I think you do feel a duty towards your books when they're out in the world and you you do want to do right by them and that can get in the way of um, focusing on new work sometimes. Uh, yeah, so it took me about a year and a half to be ready to write again. Um, and it took a lot of, uh, you know, not being very kind to myself before I realised, you know, it's okay, just take your time. Um, so now it's like my next book, I kind of just was like, okay, you can have like a year or even a year, year and a half just as a buffer period before getting into something else. Um, I feel like that's totally fine now. But um, yeah, I think I, I just really expected to be constantly writing and moving seamlessly from one thing to another. Yeah, brutal, brutal. Very understandable. Yeah. And very, very normal, very normal behavior. So 
did, tell me, did you, when you, um, so obviously there was a, there was a cool down period. Like you allowed, like, this is the first formative you know period that you've done like that. So you're like, okay, well, you know, now I know, but when you, even though beautiful revolutionary was done in dusty. So I, I sometimes feel like this when you start a new novel is that you, that you, that you're like, God, like I'm still so in the world of this mm. novel that I've got nothing doing for this next one, except the most feeble kind of like, flimsy mm-hmm. premise how am i possibly going to get into that you know how am i ever going to like br- detoxify myself or you know deprogram myself from where it's been so laser focused of this onto that did you experience that at all or not really oh definitely um yeah i think that helped a lot and that always helps for me is music because uh, i always kind of have like a soundtrack for each book that i'm writing and that kind of uh, feeds into the feelings of the world that I'm writing about and helps me imagine it. Uh, so once I get excited about a different type of music, that's kind of a um, sign to me that I'm ready to go in a different direction. So yeah, because I was still like after listening to Beautiful, uh, after writing Beautiful Revolutionary, I was still listening to the music that I had been writing to for quite a long time. And then I was like, I'm bored of this. I'm going to listen to new stuff now. And that kind of helped me get in the creative space. So what were you? Oh, sorry. You go. Uh, Oh no, no. I was just going to say, what were you? What were you? What were you pumping when you were listening to the newcomer? Was it the stuff that um, that Paulina was asking for with the DJ at the the start there? Because a lot of that was like there was some there was some very very good stuff that's that's constantly serving in my playlist. I think that yeah, there was a lot of yeah. Yeah, you go. Yeah, a lot of um nineties alternative stuff, uh, Sonic Youth, Smashing Pumpkins, that sort of stuff. Um. Also, but I think, yeah, the biggest one was Bauhaus, a gothic rock band. Um, yeah, that was kind of like, this music really just helped me tap into Paulina's energy, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, mad. So with the, like, you've talked a little bit about um, how, like, you've kind of unlocked this process of yourself now where you, you know, you're going to be able to have a cool down period between, between major works. Has your writing process, did it change? Did it change at all when you're writing, um, from Beautiful Revolutionary to the newcomer. I know that with Beautiful Revolutionary, you kind of, um, I think I've heard you mention on the podcast that you had like a short, very kind of like fleeting window to you wanted to get as much done as possible when you were, when you were there literally mm-hmm. in the US. So with the newcomer, mm-hmm. had it changed it a, a bit or not really? Yeah, it was very different because um, another major difference was I had a contract to write Beautiful Revolutionary. So I had a date that I was meant to hand it in by and Deadlines for publishing contracts are quite loose, you know, they can be extended, but there was a vague sense of this is when I need to have it done by. Uh, With the newcomer, like I made the choice, even though my publisher uh, that both my previous books were with, they were interested. I'm just like, I'm just going to write it and enjoy writing it without being on a contract. Um, And that was quite different to me, but I think, uh, I was in a better position to do that because I just was really enjoying the writing process after not writing for so long that um, I didn't really want to think about publishers too much. I just wanted to do the thing and get to the end of it and then, you know, do all that other stuff later. So I didn't have it hanging over me or really being part of my thought process at all. Um, So that was a big difference, but I actually wrote the newcomer very quickly, uh, I wrote it within a year, um, first draft anyway, and then was editing it 
throughout 2020. Yeah, nice. God, so, so yeah, that, wow, that's interesting that that's like sort of liberating to not have the, the date, the date, you know, kind of like just enjoying the vine. I'm glad to hear that it wasn't mm-hmm. like, uh, like there wasn't this period of, well, I don't know, like, like if, there, if there was a time when, when you were writing it or started to write it, if it was kind of like, oh, like writhing on the ground in agony, trying to, trying to get back mm-hmm. into it or no, it just kind of like to just sort of work out for you. Yeah, yeah. It, it was just like the hardest thing was finding time and space for it. Um, mm. That was a problem. Like I, I just, yeah, because I, I got very manic like in the early stages of writing it and I wasn't sleeping enough and I, I was just, you know, overworking myself because I was working my day job and then trying to write like five hours a day on top of that. And it was just too much and I, I got a bit sick and then I was like, okay, time to slow, not slow down, but just, you know, like have a bit more balance to how I'm approaching it. Um, but it did happen quite seamlessly once I knew who Paulina was and who Judy, Judy was, because it was almost like I was just I, hearing their voices and writing them down. Um, and a lot of the book is dialogue. So. It is, it is. It, 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 I, was, I was interested by that as well. And we kind of haven't really talked about that, but I, I wanted to know Laura as well, because it felt in some respects different, like, I mean, the, the dialogue, it was still prevalent within Before Evolutionary, but um, it felt more like it was the, the story itself was kind of told primarily through conversations within the newcomer. And I'm, 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 mm-hmm. I'm an ardent lover of conversations. They're my absolute favourite. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're the cat's pyjamas in terms of hearing what other characters say to each other and how they phrase their own, mm-hmm. their own character to another character kind of thing. So that felt a little bit different, I must say, and I want to know mm-hmm. a little bit about that. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, when I first started writing, like in my early 20s, I hated dialogue and I would do whatever I could to avoid it. I would just, you know, have dense description and write hardly any dialogue. Um, And then I just like gradually got more comfortable with it over the years. I think working in the call centre as my day job was really helpful. Like I've done that for about seven years. Um, And so that gives you a sense of how people talk and stuff. Mm. And I also, I studied screenwriting, just a couple of short courses and and that helped as well. Um, But yeah, I kind of like, by Beautiful Revolutionary, I was quite comfortable with dialogue. And then with the newcomer, uh, I was not only comfortable, but competent to the point of wanting to show off a bit. Uh, So I'm like, I'm just gonna like do do a lot of dialogue. This is working. But it also had to do with the kind of character Paulina is as well, because beautiful revolutionary like my main characters Lenny and Evelyn they were quite introspective Mm -hmm. um whereas Paulina isn't I think she has like this complete lack of introspection which to me was really refreshing and I, I just enjoyed having a character who was doing things and saying things and not really inside her head too much yeah, interesting. I swear you said that um, originally when you were kicking around Beautiful Revolutionary, it, you were tossing up whether it was going to be a novel or a screenplay. Is that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, God, I know that we're, I know it's early days. I know it's only publication day, but is, this, is that something that you'd be interested in doing maybe? Would be potentially adapting into a screenplay and then going from there? Yeah, hell yeah. I, I would love to have it be a TV series. That's kind of the dream. I mean, I just when I'm picturing things in my head, like I wish I could just have the pictures out in the world, but you know, writing is what I do. So that, that's the form that it takes. But 
yeah, I, I think that would be really great. You know, I, I love the idea of, um, I guess, collaborating with people to make something entirely new. And yeah, that, that's a dream of mine, I guess. Absolutely. I can 100% get behind that dream. It's, it's the, the coolest thing ever. Yeah. You write something on a piece of paper, it's nothing, it comes from your head. And then from there, gets to a point where you go jump, jump mediums and then it's actually like a, you're, yeah, you're seeing it on a screen and you're seeing these characters that yeah. you thought about and you're like, whoa, that's wild. Uh, it will happen for you, Laura. I am uh, 100% confident that that will definitely, absolutely 100% happen so. for you. No, it will. It will. So, look, let's let's end with a good question that I always like to, to ask because um, you never get two different, you never get the two, no, no two answers are ever the same, is what advice would you give to aspiring authors? I mean, I think one piece of advice is, like, you're going to make mistakes either way you're probably going to do things or say things that are embarrassing or you're going to regret some of your earlier work I think um the mistakes are part of it and you just have to kind of move along and treat each project as its own thing uh because I think one thing when I'm working on each thing it's the best thing ever and what I've done in the past is just like whatever um so I think you're always going to outgrow your work you're always going to be changing uh so just yeah be be like okay with that you don't have to be perfect and you can you can make mistakes brilliant absolutely brilliant um laura's been an absolute pleasure talking to you on the right way podcast program happy launch day i didn't know it was your launch Thank day you. i didn't know it was actually today that's so fantastic um i'm sure I am not going to be the first uh, person that you talk to about this this book. Probably probably the first this week, but certainly not the last. And uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I can't wait to see you doing really well with it. And um, yeah, thank you again so much. Thank you. Yes, everyone. So that was Laura Elizabeth Waller talking to me about her second novel, The Newcomer, that's out today in all good bookshops. Uh, of course, naturally, as I will always do, I'm going to put the uh, link in the bio slash description of this particular episode uh, for the good folks at Scribe Publications, who are Laura's publisher, so that you can pick up a copy of The Newcomer and Laura's other work, uh, Beautiful Revolutionary and For the Love of a Bad Man, her collection of short stories, all available from the good folks at Scribe. Again, huge thanks to Laura Elizabeth Wallet for talking to me uh, on her publication day, no less. So that was a yeah huge privilege to be able to do so. Um, as always, and huge privilege, speaking of privileges, it's a huge privilege and an honour to continue to do this and to continue to make these episodes for you guys that keep listening to them and going back and listening to the backstory. Please keep doing what you're doing. It's, uh, it's really making me feel getting a lot of feels in the feels area about the amount of numbers of listeners I'm seeing going back, especially, you know, now we're getting to what's what, six, seven, eight months in with the, you know, Monica McInerney Godmother's discussion back there and, you know, that infancy period, that formative period of the podcast in November of last year. So thank you so much for you guys for continuing to listen to the show. Got a lot more episodes coming up for you. Be sure to follow the program if you haven't already there on Spotify or SoundCloud, wherever you're listening to this on. And yeah, I thank you again for those of my brethren, brothers, sisters, non-binary that are currently in Sydney's lockdown. Uh, Keep doing what you're doing. We'll get through this together. And yeah, may everyone have a lovely and safe weekend. Thank you.